0: Our bill reduces inflation, lowers costs, creates millions of manufacturing jobs, enhances our energy security, and is the boldest climate package in U.S. history. The Senate has now passed the most significant bill to fight the climate crisis ever. And it's gonna make a difference to my grandkids. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy, That clip was from Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's reflections on passing the Inflation Reduction Act through the Senate this weekend. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, August 9th. Let's begin with a conversation about this potentially historic piece of legislation. What we're witnessing right now is a reminder that the only consistency in politics is change. Earlier this summer, it seemed Biden's policy agenda was stalled out, but now, in addition to that earlier major COVID bill and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, we've seen more recently the $282 billion chips bill to support the U.S. semiconductor manufacturing industry, which Biden signed actually today. And now a big, if paired back, version of Build Back Better in the form of the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed the Senate and is headed over to the House. Now, it's important to remember, of course, this legislation was passed through the budget reconciliation process. That means that all 50 Democrats and the tie-breaking vote from Vice President Harris were needed, and it very much restricts what can get included. It has to directly affect federal spending and revenue. After dying multiple deaths through the negotiation process, this important climate bill moved forward. It also makes major improvements in healthcare equity, major progressive tax provisions, and it lowers the deficit by roughly 300 billion. While it's far from perfect, every compromise is far from perfect. Advocates have been noting that this legislation has a plausible chance of slashing domestic emissions and resetting the dynamic on global climate talks. The climate provisions are definitely the most consequential part of the bill and are getting the most conversation. They have the opportunity to lead to significant reductions in US greenhouse gas emissions, includes 300 billion dollars for energy and climate reform largest federal clean energy investment ever in american history 60 billion for renewable energy infrastructure manufacturing solar panels wind turbines several tax credits for individuals on things like electric vehicles making homes more energy efficient although as I said, far from perfect. It has a range of threats included in here, mandating new oil and gas drilling auctions on federal lands, despite Biden's campaign pledge to thwart fossil fuel development on public land, reinstating canceled oil and gas leases in Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico, controversial investments in credits for carbon capture, and of course, hydrogen and nuclear power generation. So great things, problematic things, also questions like the Tax credits for electric vehicles require those to be from products that are sourced in the U.S. or countries with treaties in the U.S., which may actually make it hard to apply these tax credits at scale because of where uh, certain rare earth minerals come from around the globe. But a big step forward simply to pass a big piece of climate legislation. Back in 2010, the last major piece of climate legislation that seemed to have the prospect of moving forward died in the Senate, and this one has passed. Of course, it's more than just a climate bill. You also have health care where it's the most substantial change to health policy since the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010. It uses federal subsidies to reduce the cost of health insurance and prescription drugs. Extending the Affordable Care Act gives Medicare officials the power to negotiate for the first time ever the price of some key drugs. Now it's only 10 drugs to start but it's the first opening to be able to do this it has been long sought and to even have a first step as big and also the bill's benefits overwhelmingly will go to poor working class and middle class families and the costs will be borne by reductions in the profits of pharmaceutical companies and a set of otherwise largely progressive tax reform it creates a 15 percent minimum tax for corporations with a billion dollars or more in income, which will bring in like $300 billion in revenue. Also includes major new funding to restore the ability of the IRS to enforce the existing tax code. And of course, like all negotiations, things get cut. So on the taxation front, the carried interest tax loophole, which benefits private equity investors, was cut after Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema demanded it be removed before she'd vote yes. But they've added back in a 1% excise tax on stock buybacks, which could actually bring in five times as much revenue from corporations as the carried interest tax loophole. So overall a very economically progressive bill. Now the question, this is a huge piece of legislation and important in that function. It is what we expect from a functioning democracy to pass legislation and move a country forward. The question is how does it play out politically? Who does it resonate with on the healthcare side? While it has major savings for people, will they realize they got a savings when they just didn't get a bill that they never might have known was coming? On the climate side, how will these play out in reality and what will be next? Does it restart and restore momentum for climate action or is this as far as we get? So a moment to celebrate, but also a moment to continue to organize, continue to push forward see a similar dynamic right now around abortion. I talked last week about the value them both amendment the effort by Kansas Republicans to remove the prohibitions against regulating abortion from the Kansas constitution. And it was rejected by an overwhelming and surprising 60-40 margin. Um, the only poll, as well as the predictions from on the ground organizers, thought it was going to be a very close vote. And instead, 60% of Kansans said no and kept the protections for choice in the Constitution. It's really galvanized pro-choice advocates and Democrats more broadly to see that what they hoped was that this could be a galvanizing issue in November. This was the first vote since the Dobbs decision. So now we're looking forward to the pro-choice measures in California, Vermont, and especially battleground state of Michigan, as well as the chance to reject anti-choice measures in Kentucky and Montana, historically Republican holdouts like Kansas. But perhaps this shows a different path. We're also seeing other signs of kind of the winds of change. A Bunch of polls are coming out showing that races that looked like long shots for Democrats are getting closer. In Florida, there's uh, showing that Val Demings and Marco Rubio are deadlocked, 45-45. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is only leading by a couple points against his two most likely opponents, Charlie Crist or Nikki Freed. Over in Ohio, there's three polls that have been coming out in the last couple weeks, one actually from a conservative PAC, and all three show that Democrat Tim Ryan has been outpacing Republican J.D. Vance know 48 45 46 41 44 38 but all of them by a couple points putting the Ohio Senate race in play in a different way than people had expected so up and down from passing legislation to really the Kansas example around abortion to polls that are coming out show that the kind of shifting dynamics of the midterms are here and always have to watch. You know, Early polls don't tell you where things will end. They tell you where things are at at a particular moment in time. Other things to be watching this week. Of course, yesterday Trump released a statement saying that the FBI had carried out an unannounced search warrant on his Mar-a-Lago residence. Unclear whether the search was specifically related to the January 6th committee's investigation or undertaken separately by the Department of Justice. Of course, the big question is this is likely connected to the fact that Back in February, the National Archives notified Congress that they'd retrieved 15 boxes of documents, including classified materials, from Trump's Florida residence. And taking those classified documents actually is a crime that could disqualify Trump from ever holding office again. It's also worth noting that A judge is required to sign off on an unannounced search warrant. And that only happens if there's enough evidence that a crime likely would occur. And the current FBI director who would have submitted that request for a warrant, Christopher Wray, was appointed by Trump. So, of course, now Trump and the American right has been kind of fast mobilizing of this as an example of political persecution and overreach. The National Review, a conservative publication, said... The idea that a law enforcement organization under a sitting president would raid the home of his predecessor, opponent in the previous election, and potential opponent in the next election has no close parallel in American history. And that's absolutely true. It's also because we have no close parallel in American history of the purported violations of law by Trump as a sitting president. We are in uncharted territory. Uh, Biden did note he had no idea of the warrant before there were public reports of the search itself but how this search warrant plays out and adding more fuel to the fire around January 6th we'll have to keep our eyes on and then last but not least I just want to of course keep up to date with primaries it's a busy August primary season and today we're see primaries in Connecticut Minnesota Vermont and Wisconsin the two big things among all of these primaries to be looking at from a national lens in Wisconsin you know the question about the Republican governor's primary whether you'll see uh, Scott Walker's running mate Rebecca Kleefisch, win or Tim Michaels who's backed by Trump either one will then take on Democratic governor Tony Evers and then of course the Senate which we expected to be the big race to watch today the Democratic primary but all three of the leading opponents to Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes have all dropped out and endorsed him. So this means that Barnes is almost all but certain to be on a course to compete with Republican Senator Ron Johnson in November. And then last but worth celebrating is over in Vermont, Senate President Pro Tem Becca Belint and Lieutenant Governor Molly Gray are running against each other in the Democratic primary for the open house seat. And what that means is either one, This very solidly blue state, whoever wins the primary, uh, right now Becca Blint looks to be in the lead, will be the first woman from Vermont to go to Congress, and that will be the 50th and final state to send a woman to Congress. About time. So that's all for this week's review of developments in American democracy. I'm Jason Franklin, and I look forward to talking with you again next week on 10 Minutes on Democracy. Take care.